Morning, morning, church. How are you? Let's bow for a word of prayer. Gracious Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have to come here this morning and, and worship you through song and the study of your word. We uh, are mindful of the fact that apart from you, we're nothing. Uh, we need your strength uh, to get through our days. We need wisdom for the times that we're not sure what direction to head. We need strength. And we thank you that your strength is made perfect in weakness. We thank you that you are a God of supreme power and majesty. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the skies proclaim its handiwork. And day after day, they speak to your glory. We thank you, Father, for the time we have to open your word, guide and direct us, lead us into all truth. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I'm almost positive that most of us have seen a book of this type. It is a Four Dummies series. Um, this one happens to be about graphing calculators. This title began in 1991. Uh, the whole thing, the whole book series started back then. Uh, first book out was DOS for Dummies. How many remember what DOS is? Disk Operating System. So yeah, older, grayer hand, or most of you are, some of you are familiar with, but it's DOS system. Over the course of 31 years, the publisher has succeeded in publishing over 2,500 different copies dealing with the series, which has resulted in over $200 million in printed book income and over $250 million in online downloads. The success of the publisher has, uh, has not come because of their willingness to insult the intelligence of people. They succeeded because they playfully tapped into the normal experience of feeling totally lost when it comes to subjects like uh, accounting and beekeeping and real estate and golf and Medicare and cooking and psychology and network and the list goes on and on and on. They built their business on the value of breaking things down, explaining things, complicated ideas and simplifying complex information. Well, this morning, Jesus Christ wants to do that very thing for us. No, he hasn't written a book on relationships for dummies, but he has simplified the complexity of the most important question, how do I relate to God and to others? Jesus was the master of simplifying wonderful truth, the wonderful truth of Scripture. He shared with us that life is made up of a series of choices and decisions that have a profound impact on our tomorrow. The big idea this morning, the choices you make today will affect your life tomorrow and beyond, so choose wisely. This passage before us, Jesus, simplifi simpli Jesus simplifies some very deeply profound truths in a couple of sentences. So if you haven't already turned to Matthew chapter 7, we'll be looking at verses 12 through 14. First of all, we deal with the golden rule, Matthew 12 or 7, 12. For whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. In a nutshell, treat people the same way you want them to treat you. There it is. <laughs> there you have it, relationship 101 of the mass, from the master of all, communicator of all time, Jesus Christ. Some have called this the Mount Everest of ethics. Unquestionably, it is the supreme, surprise, or supreme standard for all relationships. We know it from childhood as it was expressed as the golden rule. Now, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. This phrase uh, addresses hundreds of relational issues. 
And it sums it up in just one sentence. Instead of laying out all these different rules and in regard to relationships, it's been distilled down to one easy sentence. Notice verse 12 begins with the word so. In some translations, verse 12 begins with the word therefore. This word points us back to the immediate text, but to the preceding passage, verses 7 through 11, we read the wonderful promise and encouragement to those who consistently ask, those who seek, those who knock in their prayers. In verse 11, we see that for those who belong to Jesus, there is a Father in heaven who will give good things to those who ask him. In fact, that leads us to the so in verse 12. That is, God generously, God's generosity to us should inspire us, embolden us to be generous and loving and caring to other people. So the two greatest realities in all scriptures are these. God is our Father, and Christians are our brothers and sisters. This is an essential truth in all scripture. Relationships are the central theme of the Bible, and especially the gospel. In fact, in Matthew 22, 37, Jesus said this, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Pretty well summarizes it, doesn't it? Jesus said you can sum up all biblical revelation. You can sum up all divine data. You can boil it down to two realities, two things, your relationship with the Heavenly Father and your relationship with others. We're a family. We are a family. God is our Father. Christians are our brothers and sisters. Sometimes we lose sight of that in our relationships, in our interactions, in our conversations with one another. In other words, the whole law as it relates to mankind living in this world can be summed up by love, love your neighbor as yourself. Or another way is put it, do, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It's really the same thing. It's just another way of saying the same thing. You love one another. Galatians 4 or 5.14 says, The whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, found in verse 12 is a beautiful example of how Jesus summarized volumes of inspired truth um, into a clear and understandable term. And uh, here it is. The teachings of the law and the prophet can be stilled down to two, two imperatives. Love God and love others. And you can, if you can wrap your head around these two things and seek to apply them daily, it's going to change your life and the lives of those people around you. People say, oh, the Bible is so complex. The Bible is hard to understand. There's so many verses. What about this? And what about that? I don't understand it. Well, here it is. Love your neighbor as yourself, period. That governs all human relationships, doesn't it? Reminds me of the pastor who preached about loving God and loving others five Sundays in a row. And after the fifth Sunday, you know, everyone in this congregation is getting a little agitated. Don't you have another message that you can preach? He says, well, when you start applying this one, I'll move on to the next. You know, I've often said, if I were to, if I sought to understand and apply my life to the great commandment to love God and to love others with all my soul, with all my mind, with all my strength, and to love my neighbors myself, that would be plenty. That, that would be plenty. That would keep me busy for the rest of my life. The rich truth in this verse is we are to do to others as we'd have them do to us. 
as we look at 1 Corinthians 13, also known as the love chapter, there are clearly things that we are to do, and there are things that we are not to do that will communicate love to those around us. Now, to, to completely understand this passage, we need to approach it with a clear and realistic um, set of expectations. Doing unto others as you would have them do unto you doesn't necessarily mean that they will. All right? In fact, we may already know that they won't. <laughs> but that doesn't change what we do, does it? Love doesn't judge. Love does not criticize. And love also reaches out and does to others what it wish would be done to itself, even though it may never be done to us. That is what makes the golden rule so amazing. That's what raises the bar on Christian love. We serve others. Now, we give sacrificially. We speak words of encouragement. We lift up. We avoid being judgmental. We do all of this and more with no thought, no expectation of it ever coming back to us. We do it to honor God, and we do it because if it was done to us, it would feel so good. It would feel like we are really being loved and appreciated. Now, if we go around our school and workplace and home and say, I'm a child of God, <laughs> well, then there ought to be something that, that resembles Christ or God in us. People say our kids look like us. Tough, but true. Some say that, well, they actually act like us. Well, if that's the case, uh, if we claim to be a child of God, there ought to be some resemblance. Now, the opposite of, the, it is the opposite of saying, if you're nice to me, if you're kind to me, if you serve me, I'll be nice to you. Well, love says, I'll be nice to you. I will just be nice to you, regardless of how you treat me. If you're not, uh, if you haven't already figured out, this kind of love does not come natural for us. You may be thinking, oh, that's kind of a high calling. Yes, it is. And it's not an expectation that God has for us apart from him, his enablement. And so, my friends, the truth is that, for the most part, it's not natural for us to treat others the way that we would want to be treated. We are inclined to treat others not in light of their feelings, but in light of our own feelings. We're inclined to treat others the way that we feel they deserve. We are inclined to use others to get what we want. We are inclined to do unto others before, before they do unto us. Well, here's the problem with the golden rule. Without inward, individual change, broader change is next to impossible. It has to start in here. And do unto others as you would have them do unto you is really a supernatural thing. It's the Spirit of God working hand in hand with your will, your spirit, that makes this a reality in your life and in my life. Jesus is speaking to what all of us already know. Deep within all of us, within each person, there is a longing to be loved. Uh, there's a longing to be respected. There's a longing to be heard and treated fairly with kindness, with patience, with understanding, with compassion, and with grace. These longings are universal. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you is all about the choices that we make. Every day we wake up, we're faced with a decision to live by this principle or not. Every day we should pray, by grace, Father, help me to treat others today as I want them, as I would want them to treat me, that they may see Jesus in me. Every day we make choices that affect the direction in which we are headed, and some of those choices will determine our future or eternal destiny. Look at verse 13. 
Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. For those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that lead to life, and those who find it are few. Well, life is full of choices. Life is full of choices. Every single day of our life, we make choices about so many things. We decide what time we'll give up, get up or whether we'll get up. We decide what we'll eat, what we'll drink, what we'll, what we'll do, where, what we'll do. All these things are choices that we make. Constantly, life is a matter of choices, a matter of decisions. And those decisions not only affect tomorrow, but all eternity. Every day we wake up, we're faced with a plethora of choices. Right now, there's a huge group of college students on spring break who are making choices that will affect the rest of their life. Every day we wake up, we make a series of choices, and some of those choices are good, some of those choices are devastating, and we live with the results of those choices for the rest of our life. Choose wisely. And there are people at the crossroads of a career change which will affect their future. There are people looking at financial decision that may have long-term consequences. There are people all around us weighing out what they will do with their religious upbringing. Will they follow? the teachings of the Bible, or where they seek to set their own course in life. Ultimately and inevitably, there is a final choice, a choice, a choice that will not only determine today, but a choice that will determine our future, our eternity. And that choice is the one which the Lord speaks of in these two verses, the ultimate choice. And that is really the point to which Jesus has been driving at all through the Sermon on the Mount. All of this has been building, this masterful sermon. He brings the whole thing to a climax with a, a decision. Here it is, a choice. Two gates, which bring the individual to two roads, which leads to two destinations, which are populated by two completely different groups of people. God gave to the people of Israel ultimate choice. Ultimate choice, life or death, good or evil. And he called it as he calls for a decision. Joshua said to the people of Israel in Joshua 24, 15, choose you this day who you will serve. But as for me and my house, well, we're going to serve the Lord. And Moses in Deuteronomy 30, 19, he said, I call upon heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live. Elijah on Mount Carmel called for a decision in 1 Kings 18.21 when he said, How long will you waver between two opinion, opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if it's Baal, if Baal is God, well, follow him. But the people said nothing, the verse says. The ultimate choice. A deliberate choice has to be made. It has to be made. Christ came to bring a kingdom. He was a king. He was the king of kings. And he came with a kingdom that was unique. It was special. It was separate and different from all the other kingdoms of the world. And now he gives us a choice to either enter it or stay out. That choice want, he, that's the choice he wants every person to consider. The first statement of verse 12 is more than just a suggestion. It's a call to action. Jesus is saying, what is your response? What's your reaction? What are you going to do with this? Verses 13 and 14 are the apex, the climax, to which Jesus has been moving this entire sermon to, to bring people to a point of response. All the way through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is contrasting true religion from false religion. 
you've heard it said, but this is what I say. The religion of the day, the religion of man, the contrast between self-righteousness and divine righteousness. It's between faith alone, grace alone, and good works. It is a choice between a man-made religion and a faith relationship with Jesus Christ. A man-made system of religion are based upon the facts that we really don't need a savior. We don't need a savior. We have the ability to develop our own righteousness, our own way to heaven. In the illustration before us, there are two gates, two ways, two groups, and two completely different destinations. It's a choice that everyone needs to make. In verse 13, begins with the statement, enter by the narrow gate. As I shared earlier, this statement is more than just a strong suggestion. It's a written as an imperative mood. It's a command. It is a command. It's a command of a parent that a parent would give to a child to get out of a busy street. Get out of there. Get off the road. You know, there's an urgency here, and Jesus knows the choices that people make and will be making. He knows that anything other than the narrow gate will lead to an ongoing eternal destruction. You see the heart of Jesus here. You see the heart of Jesus. Enter the gate. Get, get out of the road. Get out of that dangerous road. It, is a, it demands, a, it's a point of action right now. Do it right now. Enter now. This is the time. This is the moment. This is what God is calling you to do. Do it now. You must do it before it's too late. Verses 13 and 14, <clears throat> excuse me, we find two sets, two gates, two ways, two groups, two destinations. The first of all is we get to the two gates. We see that the wide gate and the narrow gate. One author suggests that both gates have a sign above them that reads, heaven, this way to heaven. This is the way to salvation. Both roads point to God. Both roads point to the kingdom. And that is a deception that Satan would love for people to believe. I've done a lot of funerals over the years. No one has ever thought their loved one was in hell. Ever. Ever. Few people have ever, you know, there's very few people promoting hell. You know, come join our group. We'll all go to hell together. That just doesn't happen, all right? You don't hear that rally cry. Everyone is selling heaven. Um, lady at a hotel, Angie and I were at, we got in a conversation with her. She was kind of cleaning up, keeping the food, you know, stocked and, and, uh, said, how's your, you know, how's it going? She talked about her brother. My brother just died last week. And, you know, we're like, oh, that's, that's awful. You know, and we talked with her over a period of time and she says, yeah, she says, you know, uh, my brother is raising hell in heaven. Man, I almost fell off my chair. Wow. <laughs> it's like that is so wrong on so many levels, and I just didn't have the time to dive into it. I'm like, do you realize how that really sounds? And she's just laughing away, and I'm like, what do I say to that? You know? uh, no, no, that's not how it goes. Um, but before you get on that road, you have to go through a gate. So the gate comes first, the wide gate, for the wide gate is wide. For the gate is wide, that is, that's all it says, that's it. The gate is wide, easy to find. Um, Easy to enter. You can come with anybody you want. It's a collective experience. You can bring all your baggage. You don't have to drop anything. Uh, no need to change anything. You can bring your pride, your sin, your self-righteousness. A West Indian man uh, who had chosen Islam over Christianity said this. He says, my reason for Islam is, is a noble, broad path. And I quote, there's room for a man and his sins on it. The way to Christ is far too narrow. 
These are his words. This brings us to the narrow gate. Enter by the narrow gate. What do we know about the narrow gate? First of all, we know it's very, very specific. It's a narrow because there's only one way to get through it. It's the biggest, you know, this is one of the biggest complaints about Christianity. There's just one way to heaven, and that's through Jesus Christ. And people have a big time with that, problem with that. Why is it? It's so narrow. It's so exclusive. It's so specific. Man, that doesn't make sense to so many people. But the truth is, there's no other way. There is no other way. Jesus is a door. He is a door. There's no other gate to heaven. Acts 4.12 says, There's salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. I, Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I am the door. Yeah, pretty specific. Pretty specific. John 1.12, Jesus, or, uh, John says, As many as received him, to them gave he the right to become the children of God, even those who believe in his name. It is only through Christ. That's it. It's only through Christ. There's no salvation in any other than Christ. He is the only way. That's it. It's very specific. If God said there were 10 ways to salvation, I'd preach all 10 of them. But there isn't. There isn't 10 ways. There's one. In 1 Timothy 2, it says there's one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. Only one. No other name. Christ alone. That is narrow. It's very narrow. And it's very specific. The second thing is uh, you, can, you, you have to enter alone. You know, coming to faith in Christ is a, is a personal decision. Many commentators would say that the best expression for the word narrow is a contemporary word that means a turnstile. And I think I've got a picture of that. Do I have one of those? A turnstile? Uh, do I have a, a slide for a turnstile? There it is, turnstile. All right, that's kind of how this is pictured. You know, ever try to get two people through this? Can't do it. I mean, I've tried to get around it, you know, under it, you know, climb over it, you know, all those things. One person at a time, that's it. Most people are used to doing things in groups. Well, Christ said, you're going to have to come, and you're going to have to come all by yourself. It's just you. It's an individual decision. It's you alone. Salvation is individual. You don't come to the kingdom in groups. People have never been saved in pairs. It's very individual. It's not, it's not the faith of your parents. It's not the faith of your spouse that's going to save you. And it's true that some believe and have been influenced by others, but it's still you coming alone to Christ. Everyone's salvation is exclusive, and it's very personal. It admits one at a time. In fact, the whole Sermon on the Mount has been, about, has been a contrast. The whole sermon is a contrast between true religion and the religion of Judaism. And frankly, between true religion and all, actually it's between true religion and all other religions, two religions, two beliefs, two sets of values. One involves your work, your effort, your righteousness, your goodness. The other acknowledges that I, none of that, I have none of that to please God. There is no rights, no one, there's a, our righteousness is like filthy rags, the Bible says in, in Romans. So it's by faith alone, it's by grace alone that we come. And we see in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it's a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one, no one can boast. You can't go before God and say, look what I did. Look how I made my way to heaven. And I've talked to a number of people that feel that way. You know, I asked the question, 
I, so if you were to stand before God today, what, what reason would you give to let, you know, for him to let you into heaven? Well, you know, I've lived a fairly good life, and I seem like my good outweighs the bad, and, you know, it just opens up a whole other conversation about our goodness, our righteousness, is really just doesn't matter to God. Where there's none righteous, no, not one. We have nothing to contribute to our salvation other than responding to Jesus' call to come. In verses 15 to 20, there are two trees. There's the good and the corrupt. There's two fruits, good and bad. There are two behaviors, the sayers and the doers. Two builders, the wise and the foolish. Two foundations, the rock and the sand. Two houses, the one that stood and the one that fell. It's simply a contrast that sums up all of religion. It would be hard to imagine a clearer way to depict, depict a choice that everyone has. You can choose the narrow gate, or you can choose the broad gate, or the broad way. There is only two. The narrow gate is narrow, very restricted. The broad gate allows for all kinds of religion, religious viewpoints. One, however, is the path to heaven, and the other is marked heaven, but it actually directs you to hell. So we see that there are two gates, the only starting point, and let's take a closer look at the two ways, the broad way and the restricted way. The broad way, well, the way that leads to destruction is broad because it is easy to get on, it's easy to travel, it's well-traveled, it's deceptively inviting. Proverbs 14, 12 says, well, there's a way that seems right to man, but in the end, it's the way of death. It's the broad way. On the broad road, there are no rules, no standards, no surrender, no giving up, no change of direction, no change of heart. The wide road is a counterfeit to the real thing. It's simply adding Jesus or religion to a confused and already selfish, self-centered or self-focused life. On the wide road, there's no removal of, of shame, no healing for the brokenhearted, there's no promise of abundant life, and there's no hope of spending eternity in heaven. That's the broad road. And there are people all around us selling tickets to the broad road. We see them referred to in verse 15 where it says, beware of all false prophets. They're selling you tickets to hell, but the gate is marked heaven. Very deceptive. They are wolves in sheep's clothes. The second way is the narrow way, the restricted way, the constricted way, the difficult way. The best translation is a constricted way. It literally means to press together, to be confined. It's a narrow path between two cliffs. It's restricted. It's challenging. It's hard. It's the narrow way isn't for those who simply want to add Jesus to their life with no thought of changing anything at any time. Salvation is like a reboot in our life. When you come to faith in Christ, the Bible says you take on a new identity, and it's been identified that there's like 32 things that happen at the moment you truly trust God when you trust God by faith and believe in him, 32 things happen in your life. Jesus said in Luke 9, 23, if a man will come to me, let him deny himself. Salvation is coming to Christ just as you are. You don't have to clean up your act to come to Christ. You don't have to clean up and get everything together before you come. You just come. But you need to come with a repentant heart, a heart that admits that you're a sinner and in need of a savior a heart that admits that you're drowning and need to be saved, a heart that admits you're lost and you need to be found, a heart that's willing to change some of the things in your life with the realization that you're going to need some help from the Holy Spirit 
and a good church supportive and a supportive church family. But the point of the narrow path is that coming to Christ is not a cakewalk. It's hard. It's hard. The decision to come to Christ is hard in the sense that there are some, you're going to deal with some stuff in your life that maybe never dealt with before. Coming to Christ is easy in the sense that all the work is done on the cross, and all we need to do is accept it by faith, believe it. But there's going to be some pushback. The Bible promises that. Perhaps the crowd you used to hang with don't want to hang out with you anymore because of your newfound relationship. Perhaps your spouse likes you more when you weren't uh, a Jesus freak, you know. Um, the Sermon on the Mount was written during a time of Roman occupation. Jesus is addressing these issues. He's saying, trust, you know, trusting in Jesus was a major decision for those first century Christians, and it came at a high price. The persecution of the Christ followers was relentless, and it was severe during the first century. And they're part of this world today that where well, there's just no tolerance for questions. Um, that's why in Luke 4, Jesus essentially said that you have to understand what you're getting into here. What are you getting into here? This isn't just about raising your hand and praying a little prayer. Now you're on the way to heaven, and that's it. No, that may cost you everything. It may cost you everything. And you've got a lot at stake here. Your life, your eternal destiny is at stake. Count the cost. And if you decide to hold on to your life, Luke, says, Luke 9 says, you will lose it forever. If you decide to lose it, you will find it forever. Salvation was never marketed by Jesus as cheap and easy. As Jesus described the two gates, the two ways, and that reminds us that there's two groups. There are two groups easily identified here. Verse 13, the broad way is occupied by many. Many are those who enter it. The narrow road, verse 14, says few, of you, few are those who find it. Two crowds, the many and the few. Begin with the many. There are many that will go in by it. Now, we've seen a reason for this. The entrance is wide. It's inviting. It come as you are. No change is necessary. Just make your own rules. Believe what you want. Do what you want. This is the opposite. Uh, this is the way that people, I think, travel by default. Um, it's easy unless, there's an active, you know, unless they're actively seeking the narrow path. This is the one that they're most likely going to travel on. Most of the people are on the broad road. The, the road encompasses, you know, all religions, all beliefs, all narrow road. You know, the narrow road is only for true believers. So the broad road is just so inviting. It's easy. There it is. And on the broad, broad road, there will be masses of people. Masses. Drop down to verse 22. Look at what it says. Many will say to me on that day. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord. Well, this is a picture of the final judgment here are the many when they will all show up at the great white throne judgment. And they're going to say, wait a minute. <laughs> uh, wait a minute, Lord. I shouldn't be here. We called you Lord. We were preaching in your name. We were healing in your name. We were casting out demons in your name. We did miracles in your name. We did the best we could in our life. What's up with this? Why am I standing before the great white throne judgment? And then God will tell them plainly, I never knew you. I never knew you. Depart from me. They had a form of godliness, but never went from their head to their heart. And here are the many. There will be few in heaven compared to the many in hell. And any in hell. By the way, hell is not a word that a lot of churches want to talk about, really. 
you know, hell is, it's not, doesn't sell well. You know, hell is kind of one of those things that we just, some churches just avoid it altogether. And sin? I don't want to talk about sin either. That's going to make people feel uncomfortable. I'm glad you have a church here that speaks about heaven and hell and the realities of what that means. And that's the history of this church. It's been like that forever. No, no pulling punches here. You know, there's a heaven, there's a hell, there's sin, there's judgment. Make a choice. And then we come to the few. There were few that will find it. This verse gives the impression that the narrow gate and the narrow road are hard to find. It may be hard in the sense it's hard to find a church today that really teaches truth. Um, I think we're blessed in this area, but there are areas where it's really hard to find a church that you can go into and really feel like you're getting a good message, a biblical message. And there are plenty of churches in the world that have strayed from the essential truths of Scripture. They're not teaching that there are sinners in need of a Savior, and, and like you said, no talk of hell or judgment. Perhaps the few who find it is referring to the fact that most people are not looking for it. Most people are content to live by their own rules. They have no desire to submit to God, the God of this universe. They're believing the lie that when their heart stops beating, it's over. It's the end, nothing further. Or they're believing that they are in due to the fact that they were baptized or that they had communion or they did confession or, or that their works somehow, their good works outweighed their bad works. The fact is that the few indicates that there are still, you know, we find that the fact that the few, it says the fact um, that few find it, that's an interesting thought, indicates that there is still plenty of people looking for it. There is still plenty of people looking for it. They will be few compared to the masses who are not looking for it. My friend, there is still a significant group of people around you and me that are still looking we have a wonderful opportunity in the day that we're living. We do. People are not very hopeful right now. You have a conversation with someone at the gas station or the restaurant, um, it's not very hopeful. And uh, people see us on the verge of a nuclear war and they can't afford to heat their house or drive their car. People are still looking. People are still seeking. And they're, hope, they're still hoping that there's something better. And we know that there is. Jeremiah 29, 13, God states, you will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. And so finally, we note that Jesus tells us that there are two destinations. Two destinations. The broad road leads to destruction. The narrow road leads to life. Wow. Broad is the way that leads to destruction. As I was as I was thinking about this this week, it just brought me to tears to think that I have people that I know right now that are on the broad road and they have no desire to change. You have family, you have friends that are on the broad road and it probably brings you to tears thinking about it. And it's a choice that they're making. The broad way is, leads to destruction one of the saddest, I think, most sobering verses in the Bible, and there will be many who will go by it. This destruction is for those who would reject God. 
God's gift, his gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ. It's for those who reject the message, the gospel message. It's for those who choose to give God a stiff arm. This destruction is going to take place in hell. Revelation 20.15 states that if, anyone, if anyone's name is not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Destruction doesn't refer to annihilation. Honestly, I wish it was. <laughs> that would be my, my perspective. But that's not what Scripture teaches. And God knows what's best. But it refers to an everlasting torment where there will be weeping, gnashing, and wailing of teeth forever and ever and ever. This is a wide road that leads to hell. It may say heaven above the gate, but it goes to hell, and that's Satan's great lie. And some may say, well, this doesn't seem fair. It's not fair. Why do, so, why do some go to heaven and others to hell? Why is it that what if someone doesn't hear the good news of Jesus Christ? What if someone's never shared that there's a God and, and we just need to trust him? Fair question. It's a fair question. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Romans chapter 1, verse 19. Romans 1, 19. <clears throat> this particular verse has been such an encouragement to me, and, and you know, just understanding that God does have. He's made himself aware. He's made himself available. He's made himself known. And uh, we see in verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them for his invisible, his attributes, namely his eternal power, divine nature, has been clearly perceived even since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Creation gives testimony of a God of the universe. And if people will look at that, and there's something inside every one of us that says, when I look at that, that should point me to something bigger. And God responds to the light. God responds to the light we've been given. And if someone looks at that and says, you know what? There's something bigger. What is it? You come along, someone else comes along, a message on the radio, something happens, God gives them a little bit more, and they respond to that. But because of creation, it points people to God. Creation itself, within each of us, we should be able to look at creation and say, man, there's a God out there, and I want to know him. And then I'll lead you to the next step. I find great comfort in this. I mean, I, I think there's a sense, there's a, healthy, there's a healthy pressure to get out there and get the news out there, but this, this helps me understand that it's not dependent on me. God is the one that creates a thirst. People need to have a thirst. They need to be looking. They need to be seeking. And as it says, if you seek, you'll be, you know, he'll be found. This is a tremendous passage. The last destination is found in, in verse uh, 14, and it's life. Difficult is a or difficult is a way that leads to life, and this life is found in heaven. It's reserved for those who have trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior. It's for those who have been set free from sin. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world 
to condemn the world, but in order that the world may be saved through him. See, the everlasting, it's a life, it's everlasting life, it's a gift of God, and the narrow road leads to life, an eternal life, an everlasting life of joy and bliss. There's just a couple of verses I want to bring to your attention, and we'll close. 1 Corinthians 2.9 says, It's written, For what, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. There's a place that God is preparing for you and me as we've trusted him. Romans 8, 18, for I consider that the suffering of this present time is not worth compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us. Revelation 21, 4, he will wipe away every tear from our eye and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore for the former things have passed away. There are two roads, but only one true way. Two roads, but only one true way. My friends, there are two paths. There are two paths. One leads to destruction. The other leads to everlasting life. One is readily found. The other must be searched for. One is popular. The other is unpopular. One is easy. One is difficult. Choose wisely, for your eternal destiny depends on this choice. Which will you choose? If you're here today, and this message really hits to your heart. Don't let it go. You know, if God's working in your heart right now saying, whoa, I thought I was on this path to, to heaven, but maybe I'm on the wide path. I'm, perhaps you're here today, and, and what you know about religion and God has just been up here, and it's never made its way down here. You need to make a decision today. Choose a narrow path. Because the other path leads to destruction, everlasting pain and judgment. So if you're here today, have never trusted Jesus Christ, never come to him and said, I'm a sinner. I need a savior. Don't go away with that in your, without having made a decision. How are we guaranteed that we're going to live the next moment? That we're not going to get in our cars and end up in an accident on our way home? We don't know that. We all have an appointment. I've shared that a lot at funerals. We all have an appointment. And you don't want that appointment and that time's up. So I beg of you, I, if you haven't trusted Christ or if you're, you're, you're raised in the church and it made sense to you that you kind of went through the motions but it's never made its way to here, if you kind of raised your hand and signed a card and you think that that's good enough but nothing's ever changed, there's been no peace, any, no fruits of being a believer, Maybe there's something missing there. So I'm going to pray, and I'm going to pray that you, you know, I'll pray a prayer that you could pray for yourself if you've never prayed and asked Christ to come into your life. I would encourage you, I beg of you to do it if you haven't. Let's pray. Gracious Father, as we've gone through this passage, it only leads us to one conclusion, that there, there's one right way, and that's through Jesus Christ. And there may be people here today that have never taken that step of faith, never trusted you, never placed their trust in you, never admitted that they're a sinner and need a Savior. Father, I just pray right now that you'll work in people's hearts, that if someone has come today and, and they've kind of based their religion, their future, on maybe growing up in a church, maybe be baptized at a ministry, going through catechism or having communion or whatever, uh, pray that you'll help them see the lie behind that. 
It's by grace alone, faith alone, that we come to Christ. That's it. It's not our good works. It's not our self-righteousness. It's not anything. Many people today are on the broad road, and if there's people on the broad road today, I pray that you'll help them redirect them to the narrow road and that they'll do it by trusting you. And that can be done by a simple prayer, just saying, that, Lord, I admit I'm a sinner. I, I'm a sinner. I, I, I need you. I, I admit that I failed. I admit that I've done things that are out of your um, standards. Lord, help me. I mean, believe. Father, I believe in you. I believe that you died on the cross, you rose again, that you live in heaven, and someday you're coming back. I believe that. And today I confess that I'm in need of you. I confess that I need a Savior. I need you to come into my life and save me. Father, if there's anyone here today that has expressed that, I pray that they'll share it with someone even here today. What a beautiful decision. What an amazing decision that we can make for you. Father, we thank you for the hope that's found in your resurrection. We hope the living hope. And Father, we go from here just challenged to get that message out, to be that light, to be that salt, to be that word to the people around us that need to hear that there's something better. We have something better to offer this world, and it's Jesus. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.